Okay, so do me a favor. Take your right hand, just reach over your shoulder. Okay, grab hold. Pull that down across. Buckle up. Okay? Walter Wink is a thinker, writer, theologian, and he has said that the greatest religion in the world is not Christianity, it's not uh, Islam, it's not Hinduism, it's not Buddhism, it is the pervasive faith in violence. The greatest religion in the world is the pervasive faith that we have in Violence. You ready for a good ride this morning? We are nearing the end of Luke. We are looking at Luke chapter 22 and 23, the wrongful arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. And there's a lot of violence in there. And I think when it comes to this idea of the way of Jesus and violence, it feels a little bit like the story of Sisyphus. And if you're familiar with the story of Sisyphus, it's a king who was condemned by the god Hades to push a boulder up the hill, only to, as it got near the top, for it to roll back down, and he'd have to do it all over again for eternity. And I wonder sometimes, when we talk about violence and um, nonviolent perspective in a world of violence, whether or not it feels a little bit like we're being condemned like Sisyphus, to push that stone of nonviolence up the violent hill of humanity, only to have it come crashing down and we find ourselves asking, is this really going to work? Is it really worth it? I think when it comes to the topic of violence, we have become so numb to it that we don't even realize when it's happening in front of us. Nor do we realize sometimes how often we are participating in it. And I think that's where I was talking with people this morning in the lobby, hanging out with Jesus is going to expose us again and again and again to new eyes to see the world in which we live. Justo Gonzalez was uh, a Cuban uh, thinker who grew up in Cuba, knows about difficult regimes. He's a theologian and a wonderful thinker. And he has said this about violence, that one of the most powerful things about violence is its ability to reproduce itself. See, even the most saintly people that you know can be prone to violence in some form. And we think, no, forget it. Heaven forbid. That could never happen. And as we look at the account that Luke shares with us today, we'll see, well, maybe that's not as accurate as we think. And when we're talking about violence, I want to reiterate again that we're not just talking about physical violence. We just automatically go there. And we think, okay, here's Paul again going on about beating people up. You know, Paul doesn't want me to watch John Wick uh, or things like that. And like, some of you don't even know what John Wick is. Don't worry about it. You're missing nothing. So, <clears throat> no, I said that I haven't seen it either, so. 
Or we're talking about social cultural violence where the minority suffers at the, um, so that the majority can stay on top. Talking about economic violence where uh, economic policies trump the welfare of people or the planet. We are talking about um, political violence where power and control are more important than the welfare of the people. Talking about a kind of vigilante violence that sways people from hatred to hatred towards anybody that is different or other and can be seen as the enemy. Even talking about religious violence, which takes many forms, but the common denominator is that all those involved in it attribute it to an act of worship to their deity. The most powerful religion in the world is the pervasive belief in violence. So with that, let's read from Luke 22 and 23. It's a long section. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to draw out bits and pieces. But the whole story is about Jesus being arrested in the garden, brought before the Jewish high council where he is uh, really a mock trial. He's condemned, brought to Pilate. He's condemned, brought to Herod. He's condemned brought back to Pilate, he's condemned, and then ultimately crucified over these two chapters. And I'm going to draw out bits and pieces from it just to help you zero in on this one aspect of the story that maybe you've never considered in this light before. So Judas has brought a bunch of people into the garden where Jesus is, and you can follow the previous weeks where we've walked through this. In verse 49 of Luke 22, we read this. When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they shouted, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And then one of them struck off the high priest's slave's ear with one of his swords. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And then Jesus spoke to the leading priests, the captains of the temple guard, the elders who had come for him, and he said, Am I some dangerous revolutionary? Do you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment when the power of darkness reigns. And then Luke tells us about the story of Peter denying Jesus three times while Jesus is at the high priest's house being accused of all this. And then we read in verse 63, the guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, prophesy to us, who hit you that time? And they hurled their insults at him. And then he's before the the council of leaders, the religious leaders, and they're accusing him and trying to trap him into saying something that's going to be the final nail in his coffin, so to speak. And then chapter 23, verse 1, We read, the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor, and they began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay taxes to the Roman government and by claiming that he is the Messiah, a king. So they're doing two things. One, they're lying about what Jesus said about taxes because in chapter 20, we actually looked at this where Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what is God's. And you go back and listen to that. But then they're using this political threat of Jesus claiming to usurp Caesar in his power and authority. And they're doing this before Pilate. And Pilate's kind of like, 
You know, Luke, when you read this on the surface, it looks like Pilate is maybe innocent, and he's like this nice dude. And I just got to remind you, uh, he's not a nice guy. You can read about him in history. And in Luke 13, you read about some of what he did to some, some people. And it was quite common for him just to, to execute people because it was convenient and expedient. And so Pilate, finding out Jesus is from Galilee, sends him off to Herod, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. And Herod Antipas wants to question Jesus. And we read in verse 11 of chapter 23, Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. And finally, they put a royal robe on him and they sent him back to Pilate. And then that day, Pilate and Herod became friends. Comes back to Pilate. Pilate says, I don't really see anything, you know, that's worthy of executing this guy. So I'll just have him flogged instead. And the crowd shouts, no, we want him dead. We want him dead. In verse 22, for the third time he demanded, why, what crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death, so I'll have him flogged and I'll release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. And, here, and Pilate, far from being innocent, I think is this crafty, crafty politician who does what he thinks is best, but does it in a way that the culpability is pinned on the Jewish leaders rather than himself. And then we read, beginning at verse 26, that they led Jesus away, and a man from Cyrene, his name was Simon, was there, and they made that man carry his cross. And then they crucified Jesus, they nailed him to the cross, they hung him up for all to see, and on either side of him were two criminals that were also executed with him. In verse 39, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. And the other criminal rebuked him and talked about what they deserved and how he didn't deserve that. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. So that's a lot. It's a long story. But what I want to draw out for, for us today is this pervasiveness of violence in this story. Now, I want us to go back to Luke 4. Luke 4, a long time ago, when we started looking at Luke, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, and at the very end, Luke puts this line in that Satan, the devil, left him until an opportune moment. And now you come back to this chapter in 22, the beginning of verse 20, uh, chapter 22, where we read that the devil or the Satan, not just Satan, but the Satan, entered Judas and led Judas to betray Jesus. And Jesus is beginning to pinpoint the source behind the violence of the world in which we live. And so when you come to verse 53, he says to the leaders, why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness Reigns the time when the power of darkness reigns. And Jesus is highlighting the source of the evil and the violence that's behind all this. That it's not just Judas doing something bad. It's not just this religious leaders doing something bad. But he exposes 
the violence for what it is, the work of darkness, the work of an enemy, the work of our enemy, of humanity's enemy in what the biblical writers call the devil or the Satan, the accuser. And Jesus, who calls himself the light, is the great revealer of not only the things in your heart and in your life, but the things that are going on around you in this world. And we do so well to hang out with him and pay attention to what he is leading us into and what he's asking us to do in following him. So in these stories in Luke 23, there's a pervasiveness of violence all throughout the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. But here's the kicker. Every one of the groups of people involved in, in these two chapters, which are engaged in violence, thought that they were doing the right thing. They were convinced they were doing the right thing. And that's the part that actually gets a little bit disturbing, is how easy it is to justify violence in any form when we feel that we're in the right. And there's so much truth in these two chapters. And sometimes the truth of the biblical story, far beyond just the factual historical nature of it, is God's ability to accurately depict the human condition to what we're experiencing when we read. If we just look at a few of the people in this story, it starts off in the garden. Jesus is being arrested. Judas is there with the mob to arrest Jesus. And he's just finished having a conversation with his disciples. And they're saying to him, like, God, Jesus, we've got two swords. You know, we're ready to go. We're ready to take on Rome with our two swords. And then when the mob comes into the garden, what do they do? They take those swords and they actually try to protect Jesus. And so sometimes there's this idea of violence that we feel is righteous or protective. And we feel that there's a justification in it. The disciples thought that they were doing the right thing. And Jesus has to actually stop them and say, enough. And as you look through all of his life, all of his teaching, and even his actions and how he receives the violence in this moment, he is not condoning this kind of righteous violence. And yet they were convinced that they were doing the right thing. And then you've got the religious leaders. The religious leaders who saw Jesus as a threat in upending and causing chaos of their people and, and potentially bringing Rome in to do things that they don't want Rome doing. And so they will conspire to trap him, to accuse him falsely, to do whatever it takes to remove him out of the picture. And there's this wonderful sense of the religious violence going on because they saw a threat to the system that they had created, that they were so convinced was pleasing to God and keeping all the bad people out so that they could be pure. And Jesus was threatening the system and exposing their hypocrisy. And they were so convinced they were right in what they were doing. 
to accuse him and to try to get him executed. And you get this wonderful illustration of Pilate. And as I've already said, when you read this on the surface level, it kind of looks like Pilate's kind of like, wow, he's a pretty good guy. He's trying to actually save Jesus and free Jesus. And I'm not sure, and I guess that's the way you can read it, but I think what's going on is, is a politician who's amazingly crafty, who does exactly what he wants to do, but he gets away with it by letting the blame slide off onto somebody else. Does that sound like a politician? No offense to politicians here. We just finished a whole series on the politics of Jesus which I'd encourage you to go back and listen to. But Pilate's convinced he's doing the right thing because he's keeping the mob at bay. And if you go to John's account of this, the Gospel of John, the good news story of John, John actually gives us the conversation that Jesus has with Pilate to a much greater extent where they have a conversation about truth, power, and Jesus confronts the political power and the abuse of it with Pilate. But Pilate's convinced he's doing the right thing by preventing a riot. And then there's the crowd, this wonderful, faceless, anonymous crowd who was cheering Jesus just a few days earlier when he came into the city and shouting out, here's the Lord, here's the Lord, God saves, let's celebrate, let's cheer. And through that evil influence that Jesus has already highlighted for us, they are swayed and their minds completely changed so that they now see him as the other, the enemy, the threat. And they are convinced that calling for his blood is the right thing to do. And this will make God happy. There's this kind of sense of vigilante violence that's involved in that. You can kind of take all of this and you can sum it up into what some refer to as redemptive violence. And redemptive violence is this assumption or belief in the use of violence to save the world. And so most people would ascribe to some level or form of redemptive violence and saying that ultimately at some point violence may have to be used in order to get us out of this situation, in order to save the world. I think each one of these groups thought that what they were doing would solve the problem. And so there's this picture of redemptive violence within each of them. And the thing we haven't talked about is actually the person we haven't talked about yet, and that's the way Jesus conducts himself through the entire ordeal, often saying nothing. And yet, in his quietness and his strength, he's able to expose the violence, and by exposing it, he's exposing the evil behind it. And ultimately, he conquers it not by going down the path of retribution, but by receiving it. Jesus exposes and conquers the violence 
the evil, the sin within it all by receiving it into himself and then dying. He refuses to go down the path of violence to overcome violence. The difficulty is this. If we're honest, if you're honest, if I'm honest, we struggle with getting cozy with the crucified Jesus, and we prefer the risen one, the conquering one instead. Because we're, we're not sure whether or not we're condemned by Jesus to push that stone of nonviolence up the hill and it's never going to make it to the top. And so we kind of prefer the risen, conquering Jesus instead of the crucified one. Miroslav Volf is um, a Croatian who grew up in Serbia, went through the war in Serbia in the 90s. Brilliant thinker, I have to read his stuff and read a paragraph and then actually stop and think about what he said and then go back and read it again? Have you ever done a book like that? Well, I want to read for you something that he wrote about this. He said, in a world whose order rests on violence, we instinctively grasp for the resurrected Messiah who was given all power in heaven and on earth. Not that we find no use for the crucified one. We only insist on a division of labor between the crucified and the resurrected. Jesus. And I appreciate him pointing that out. I thought, yeah, in the church particularly, we really like singing about the conquering Jesus, the risen Jesus. And whether we realize it or not, we tend to hold back a little bit from celebrating the crucified Jesus. And I think maybe this will get me in trouble, but I'm okay with that. I think this is where our Catholic brothers and sisters can teach the church with the crucifix, the keeping Jesus on the cross as a reminder of his way. So how does Jesus respond to the violence? Well, he refuses to go down that path and he invites us to follow. Here's what I'm not saying. I think I've got to be careful that we're not communicating this naivety to our world and simply saying, like, well, we just can't use violence. Just don't use violence. Don't have military. Don't have police. Everything will be okay if we just follow Jesus. What I am asking you to do is I'm appealing for you to open your eyes. And to hang out with Jesus more and more. And let him open your eyes to the pervasiveness of the religion of violence in our world and in your own life. Maybe you've never beat anybody up. I haven't either, except hockey. That's different. I remember Jesus talking once about being angry with someone in your heart and how that's just the same. And creating people, turning people into other and into enemy 
and into different, and then justifying the way we think about them, talk about them, or treat them. I wonder, you know, back to Sisyphus, maybe it feels like we're being asked to push this stone up a mountain, and it's an impossible task. But I'd like to remind us in the story of Luke 22 and 23 and then 24 that Jesus has taken that stone and smashed that mountain of violence and turned it into a heap of rubble. And I think what he's asking you to do is to stop trying to climb the rubble of violence so that you can be a conqueror. And instead, to choose the way of the lamb who was slain. I'm going to do something different with you this morning. I'd like to teach you a song. Could I do that? All right. Christopher, this is for you because I'm a guy and I'm going to sing. This is just the give me a moment to get my guitar on. And uh, the song, really what I want you to do is to sing the chorus with me. But a lot of what we do on Sunday mornings is we sing songs to God and we express ourselves to God. This song isn't really going to be about you singing to God. You're going to be speaking to each other. The earliest followers encouraged us to encourage one another, to inspire one another, to hold each other accountable. So I'm going to invite you to sing the chorus of this song And it's really simple. It's, I want to see, I want to see the love all around you, all around you. I want to know, I want to know his love is all around you, all around. You think you can figure that out? If I I lead you into singing that? So I'm going to sing verse and then sing the chorus. And we'll sing the chorus again. And then you can sing the chorus with me when you hear how it goes. And then I'm going to sing the second verse and we're going to sing the chorus. And pay attention to what's being said in the verses. This is a song by a group called The Brilliance. I didn't write it. Um, I'm not that good. So, um, but I think it's a great song, and it's a way, rather than talking about the message, I'm going to get you to just participate in encouraging each other through how you sing to each other, okay? Let's see if I can remember it. In case I Every day we go to war again. We assume we know so much more than them. What they have to say. Headlines break. We start to hate again. Calling them names again. Our peace away. I hope they see it. Cause I wanna see it. I hope we believe it. Here's the chorus. I wanna see, I wanna see. 
words stick in our head and that tune stays with us. Jesus, you grew up in a violent world, way more violent than, than what we're familiar with here. And I'm just glad you've called us to trust you. 
Please open our eyes to our own lives and where we need to surrender this to you. May we be free from turning people into other when we don't like what they think, how they behave. This isn't about our love. That's ultimately going to fall flat. This is about your love through us. And may we never lose sight of it. Amen.